Hello, hello, everyone. This is Erica Priscilla Sandoval, CEO and founder of Latinx and Social Work, Inc. And you're listening to the Latinx and Social Work podcast, the show that makes space for and amplifies healers, leaders, and inspirational Latinx social workers at all levels of their career. Every week, I'll be speaking with a contributing author from the best-selling book, Latinx and Social Work, a collection of powerful narratives about the injustices we face and the spaces we occupy. The Latinx and Social Work podcast is a show calling attention to the racism, bias, and discrimination felt by Latinx community. Reflecting on our shared experiences, the conversations offer personal and professional guidance to the next generation of social workers. At its core, Latinx and Social Work explores collective healing and how to overcome our trauma so that we can succeed. I am so excited to be here today and share space with Tanya Vargas, who is one of our contributing authors for Latinx and social work. She is such an incredible social worker and friend. She is New York City based, but Florida raised. Tanya moved from her hometown of Tallahassee, Florida to pursue her master's in social work at New York University. Tanya is an LCSW, a licensed clinical social worker in the states of New York and New Jersey. She has worked in the child welfare system from New York City and has a passion for ending the stigma of having a mental health diagnosis. Tanya recently started her own private practice, Just a Little Step LLC, in January 2021. She sees individuals, couples, and families through telehealth services. Along with owning her own private practice and being a supervisor, Tanya is a photographer and consultant. Tanya has been certified in four different curriculums regarding foster care and LGBTQ youth in the New York City foster care system. Tanya, thank you so much for being here. What are some of the markers in your identity that is not in your bio? What else would you like people to know about you? So I think talking a little bit more about my identity, I said my parents were born and raised in Mexico. Um, I said my mom immigrated to the United States when she married my dad at 18. Um, so I said I have the privilege and sometimes a bit of responsibility being the first generation American in my family um, on my mom's side and my dad's side. Um, I said especially on my mom's side, I am the first person to go to college, to get a degree, um, to get my master's degree as well. Um, so so sometimes it's such a blessing to be able to provide this growth for my family. Um, and at the same time, it can sometimes be a, a bit of a burden of I'm the first one. My cousins are looking up to me. My brothers are looking up to me. What, what else can I do? What else can I show all of the sacrifices my parents made that it was worth it. Oh my gosh, you know, I feel like, I feel like I can relate and resonate to that. Um, especially um, being also the first gen graduate and feeling like constantly having to just make them proud. And part of that healing journey is just kind of owning and claiming our, our power and you talk a lot about that in your chapter. And I really appreciate your vulnerability. Your narrative is so powerful. What was it like for you to, to write and claim your narrative on paper? 
it was definitely challenging at first. It's trying to figure out what parts of my identity that I was willing to share with the rest of the world. Um, these are things that I have maybe talked about with my closest friends, definitely with my husband. And for the most part, it's something that I really kept to myself. Um, things that people may have suspected, but never known for certain um, about my identity, especially thinking about any type of trauma that I've been through in my life. Um, so just to sit there, to see those words reflected back at me, it, it kind of hit me with in waves of emotions of, this is my story, this is what I've lived through. And I'm only, you know, at the beginning, middle part of my life, you know, as I said, I just turned 30 years old, like there is decades more in front of me. And to see already how far I've come, it just gives me a lot of strength and perseverance of like, there's so much more I can do. Like, what, what else can I do? Um, and it's exciting to, to have those possibilities. Your narrative, Tanya, is so powerful. The themes of trauma, resilience, and healing through time really stands out for me. What, what, what do you think was the turning point for you that when you said, okay, I have to focus on my healing, I have to do something in order to move forward? I think similar to many people, you know, regardless of race or identity, started with the breakup in college. You know, this is, you know, my, what I consider like my high school sweetheart. And in the South, there's not many people of color. So most of the, the people I dated were were white. And so it was always trying to assimilate what their idea of, of what a good couple was, and especially thinking of the church that I grew a part of, of being a godly woman. What does that mean? What do I need to grow in my faith to, you know, be more accepted within the church to really show that like, yeah, I'm the only, you know, Mexican person. I think I was the only Hispanic person in that church. I think there was maybe two black families in that church as well with a congregation of 100, 150 families. Um, so I was figuring out that that was really rooted in my identity that I wanted to fit in so badly that I was like, no, like I can be who I am without a partner, without this identity being so linked to the church. Like, what does it mean to be a first generation Mexican-American? What does that mean to me? Um, and what impact do I want to have on the rest of the world? You know, there was... Um a part in your chapter that really stood out to me. And I'm going to read a little part of it. Um, you said, I was being reminded all the time that I was not like everyone else and that I didn't fully belong. This was happening at my school in random stores and also in my church. It was hard to navigate my identity. And I felt like I constantly had to prove my worth. It was exhausting. I am sure so many students, so many listeners, so many of us really feel the same way. What do you think are some tips that you can share with them to help them throughout that journey and help them processing that feeling? Absolutely. So this is thinking of people, especially young adults, um, the fact that they are here, that they are living and breathing like that, that is enough, that you are worthy, that you should be loved unconditionally, that you should have dreams and passion. And um, so I think it's in the U.S. it's really hard to kind of live with all these stigmas, all these expectations of, is it worth these people for being here? Like, what do they bring to society? We are a warm body. We have an amazing spirit. That's all we need to bring. Um, so people love to talk about the tangible of workforce, money, are you going to invest? People need to buy houses, do we need, you know, more people to have families and to grow the population. It's no, how else can you be kind? 
how are you helping your neighbors? How are you helping the people closest to you? Um, I think that's something that we've also really seen during the pandemic of how much we've revolved around our lives around workspace um, and essentially bringing our bosses, bosses, boss, you know, the top dollar. Um, what really what we want is human connection and that that vulnerability with other people and to know that we're not alone. Absolutely. Absolutely. The kindness and that connection and really ensuring that we're in community and supporting our community. Tanya, I'm so, I'm so always so impressed by speaking to all um, our contributing authors. And I just love all of the work that you've been doing in the child welfare system in New York City and your passion for ending the stigma of having a mental health diagnosis. Is this something that you walked into thinking this is what I want to do? Or is it something that just became a part of your journey? How did, how did that come up for you? I think it's something that has always been part of my journey. This I think ever since I was younger, this that I had a natural affinity that I wanted people to like me. And that means being a listening ear and helping people. And I think that just kind of became and kind of ingrained into who I am. Like, no, I actually just truly enjoy listening to people and helping people. Um, so this is the friend I was in middle school and definitely in high school. So I knew I wanted to be a part of some helping profession. Um, I think with the outside pressure of you can't be happy unless you're financially stable. You need something that, you know, will bring in lots of income. Like I really straight towards the medical field. I quickly realized I did not want to be in the medical field. I am not a science person. I'm not a math person. Um, way more math involved. And so I started kind of wondering like what other professions were out there. And I think also with social work specifically, I think people just kind of hear what they see on news or, you know, mainstream TV that it's just... CPS workers, that it's the people who come into families' home when they rip children apart from their families and talking to people who were older than me that were actual social workers already and had been in the field for, for decades of there's so much more that you can do. Um, and it's something that I, I really lent, leaned into, this, that I was able to kind of sit in a class and I just felt so at ease and so at peace of the way that people were communicating with one another, just even their body language, like they just seemed more open and also more vulnerable um, and more genuine. I was like, these are people that I want to surround myself with. Like this is, this is what I can, I can see for my future. Do you have any advice or tips for, um, for people that are, that are, that are adopting or that are, um, and the foster care system. What what is some of the advice or tips you can share? Yeah, so I think within the foster care system, there's so much negative stigma, um, especially for the older you are in foster care, especially if that correlates with how long you've been in foster care. Um, is it, especially just thinking of New York City specifically, like it has to be a very, very bleak um, and almost tragic home situation for CPS to remove a child from their home because we do not have enough foster families. Um, they know that most kids will kind of stay in almost like a, a shelter-like system until there's a home available for them. Um, and it gets more complicated if children have a chronic medical condition, if um, they are identifying as an LGBTQ youth just to ensure their, their own safety, that their identity is being respected and affirmed. Um, and sometimes that means waiting a little bit longer to find 
a safe home for them with a house that they identify in. Um, I think it's realizing too with people who are adopting, whether it's a private adoption or adoption through the child welfare system, um, that there is always going to be some type of innate trauma. Um, I think there's also the misconception that adoption at almost like an infancy stage that like, yes, that you have raised them, you've had them maybe since birth, since they were a few months old. So all they know are those adoptive parents as their parents, but there's still going to be that lingeringness of what about the people who birthed me? Do I want to meet them? What would have my home situation been like? What it really would have been as bad as people are telling me? Um, they said, with children, in child welfare, in adoptive um, families, sounds a bit rude, but these children do not owe you anything. They do not owe gratitude um, towards these parents for saving them from a tragic situation. We gave you so much. We opened up our home. It's you're fostering, you're adopting because you have such a love for children and that you want your family to grow. It's not thinking of who can I save? I want to be able to save as many kids. It's not about saving. It's I want more kids. <laughs> Where are all the children? And it's children that are, are in these vulnerable homes and in these vulnerable states. Um, and it's recognizing that as much as there's great bonding, um, but there is still great trauma. I um, mean, being able to recognize that and especially thinking about transracial homes um, you have to own that your identity is different than your child's um, that their experiences despite you them being raised from infancy in this family or just being there for a few months it's still going to be completely different especially thinking about children who are much dark skin all the world is going to first see that dark skin especially if they're with a family with incredibly light skin they are going to assume oh, it's a family friend, look how nice. They, most people are not gonna look at you know, this family and say, oh, look, what a beautiful family. They're, they're thinking there's somebody on the outside with this family. Um, so it's recognizing that, talking to them about it, um, not ignoring the race question of, we don't see race, you know, we just love you for who you are. It's, I love you for who you are, despite how the world may see you. That's so powerful. It's so true to just really connect and, and see the person for their holistic self and all their markers of their identity and not doing it just to be like an altruistic uh, human being of saying, oh, I want to save as many kids as possible. But it's truly because the love of kids and the love of, of wanting to um, just give love to um, two children that may have severe trauma and support in their healing. That work is so, so, so um, triggering for so many social workers and you do it so well, Tanya, honestly. Is, is, there, is that what your practice um, is, um, helps support like parents? Like wh how do you, what is, what is um, what usually, who is your client that you help support? So, so I see a, a wide variety of people, you know, that said if people feel like they kind of read my bio, they feel like they are able to relate to me and they feel some sort of comfort, you know, I don't want to just deny them because you don't have an, your, you know, your story isn't around like adoption or foster care. Um, while I definitely have kids in the system um, and parents who have kids in the system or have adopted um, and now they're kind of dealing with that past trauma and wanting to support the children that they best they can. Um, 
So definitely revolving around identity and just you know, generalized anxiety, depression, just kind of overall life transitions. And um, sometimes, especially with this pandemic, it just hits you full force. And all of a sudden you're just completely almost on the ground of, wait, what just happened? There's too much going on. You'd be able to, to talk to somebody about this. And I feel like you found your purpose. I feel like, you know, this, you know, this, this is just an authentic way of living. What, what gives you purpose and how has your purpose shaped your identity? It's really for me about about helping people. Um, this said realizing that that people are worthy. Um, especially thinking of the clients that I've been seeing them now when they kind of have that that breakthrough of, oh, like I am so much more than my trauma, my diagnosis, my you know, past medication history, past hospitalizations. Like I can, I can do so much more. Um, and being able to be part of that journey, um, knowing that you were a guiding hand and a supporting force is such an incredible feeling. Um, we just want everyone, or at least I want everybody to be their most authentic self, um, to live with true, true joy. Um, and it, it takes a lot to get to that place, um, especially given all of world stressors, societal, you know, norms and pressures. Um, so being able to, to help people on that journey is, is incredible. That's amazing. And not only are you a clinical social worker doing this incredible work, but also a photographer. What made you get into photography? I've always had a camera in my hand. Um, I think in middle school, my dad gave me my first camera and it was one of those very simple film cameras that cost a lot of money than going to Walmart waiting, you know, that 24 hours for my film to be developed to figure out was my photo even in focus? Did I get what I want? Should I turn on the flash? Should I not turn on the flash um, kind of thing? And I would also recognize that a lot of my friends really also couldn't afford a camera or couldn't afford to develop the film. Um, and for me, it was just, it was documenting these moments with my friends at my school because I wanted to be able to remember these moments um, at my parents' house. I think I have two of like those like 30 gallon jugs of photos and photo albums. I do not get rid of anything. My husband tells me that I am an emotional hoarder. <laughs> anything of sentimental value I want to keep <laughs> no matter no matter how small. Um, and so that just kind of grew. I was able, I got really lucky that I was able to join yearbook in high school and able to really be part of legitimately capturing moments with my junior year, senior year, sophomore year, being able to write different kinds of stories um, with not dealing with sports. Um, said our, our school uh, put a lot of emphasis on sports, which is fine. People love it. That's great. Um, but our school had so much more to offer. Um, I was very lucky that our school had the top orchestra in the state of Florida. Like we were number one and no one really talked about it. So being able to talk about our music department to talk about all of these different groups that people were forming outside of school, within the school, being able to highlight that and being able to say, like, kids need to know what else we're doing, that it's not just about football and baseball and softball season, um, that it's, it's so much more to that. Um, and it really just kind of stuck with me through college. And so being in college, you know, people are asking for graduation photos, family photos. And I was like, you know what, I, I really like this. And so I started kind of charging for my work and people were willing to pay. Um, and I was like, no, I, I like my photos have developed over time. Um, 
and being able to capture a moment, capture the energy of families, individuals, um, couples. And so it's something I just kind of, you know, do as a hobby. You know, I don't ever expect to get into photography as a a full-time gig, but I just uh, love enjoy being able to photograph people. I know that you mentioned that you prefer being behind the camera than in front of the camera. Why? Why is that? Ooh, I feel like it's one of those issues dealing with my identity of the stigma of realistically regarding around my weight of the societal pressure that it's the really thin people, the really beautiful people, realistically, the very white people, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes, like these are all, at least with when I was growing up, like that's really all I saw on covers and like centerfold magazines. Um, And so I just never felt really comfortable with myself to be in front of the camera, um, especially any type of like full body photo. Like I I can, I can take the photo. It's cool. It's fine. Um, So it's also breaking out of my shell a little bit um, when my family or especially my friends or my husband like, no, like you look great. Like I need to document you as well in this moment um, and allowing them to, to do that and kind of sitting with that vulnerability. You are so beautiful. And I love how you shine um, always in and out. And it was so great to have you as our photographer. I know you were like our Latinx and social professional photographer and also being in the pictures, just looking at all of us together just is so moving. And, you know, I think that so many times a lot of uh, adolescents and adults can experience this, this thought of not feeling um, pretty or not feeling good enough because of societal expectations of what pretty is or what is attractive. And I'm sure that a lot of, uh, a lot of our clients experience this as well. What are some, what are some ways that we can help parents um, help their teens and adolescents overcome this negative self-talk and, and, and just negative self-image of themselves? Yes, absolutely. I think it's first um, parents just telling their children that they're beautiful and that they're loved. Um, I think a lot of times, a lot of kids hear about their appearance, and especially thinking of uh, you know Hispanic Hispanic families of typically like nicer events. If you're going out to like Christmas church, you know, service, or if there's like a quinceanera or a wedding, um, you know, like yes, you look great. Like the family looks beautiful. I'm just telling kids when they wake up, you know, 9 a.m., you know, they got that bed head, they're still in the PJs of, you look great. You know, you look shiny, you look refreshed. Um, and just being mindful of the little comments people make. It's usually the little comments that really stick with us all through adulthood um, and definitely through our adolescence, especially parents. Half the time, they probably don't even realize, like, out of the whole 10-minute conversation, it's just maybe four or five words that are going to stick with them because um, it impacted them in such a way. Um, so it's being mindful, kind of reading on your kid's body language a little bit, also reflecting on the past conversation of, hey, let me go back and readdress. Like, oh, I said something about your parents. Um, it was very in passing. But I said, you are, are beautiful. I really shouldn't have said that. It's, I want to help you grow. I want to help your self-esteem grow and recognizing that, a lot of these pressures are coming from society and it's parents sometimes in a way wanting to protect their children, um, especially thinking of parents of color, that there's so many other identities 
and so many other traumas that they can go through. And so for maintaining appearance and body image, that's sometimes one of the things that parents really can control. Um, and so it's, you know, allowing your kids, I do want control as I want to protect you, but I also recognize that you're growing um, and I need to really be able to let you grow and flourish. And that also sometimes means going through really hard lessons and just being able to be that support system when they do go through those hard times. Yes, Tanya. Yes. I wish, you know, I wish um, there was, I wish we had this when we were growing up, you know, just an opportunity to hear and, and help us heal through our journey. I, I know that many people have experienced this and still continue to experience it. Even as adults, we have these negative self talks in our head. um, And we're constantly comparing ourselves to the what quote unquote perfect being. And there's no such thing as that. So I'm going to ask you a question that I ask all our contributing authors. Um, If there was a movie uh, about you, what would it be called? That's a good question. Definitely a question I've never been asked before. Um, I think I'd want something in Spanish. I think I'd want the word amor, which means love. Amor. Amor, that means love. That's so you, Tanya, because you have so much love to give and to the world. And I'm so, so excited to have shared space with you and, and time with you. How can people reach you? How can they find you? Yeah, so that's probably the easiest way. I think the way most people communicate is through Instagram. Um, So I have two Instagrams, one for my photography, one for my private practice. Um, So my photography, it's uh, Tanya V Photos. And my private practice is just a little step. Um, Definitely ways to get my email, my phone number through my private practice as well, which is justalittlestep.com. Amazing. Amazing. I am so grateful to have shared space with you, Tanya. Thank you so much for your time. It was such a pleasure to talk with you. Yes, always. Thanks for listening to the Latinx and Social Work podcast. This would not have been possible without the support of the New York Women's Foundation and the Fund for the City of New York. Don't forget to follow us on social, on Instagram, at Latinx and Social Work, and also tell everyone to check out our book, Latinx and Social Work. If you can, please leave a review and rate our podcast to wherever you're listening from. Thank you. Till next time.